Thank you, Father, that you inspired Isaiah. Please help us to learn from what he wrote and to apply what we learn in our lives. Amen. Well, as Eddie has uh, told us, uh, this is the first in a series of 12 sermons that over the course of the next three months we'll be looking at the book of Isaiah. And our aim in relation to that is that at the end of the three months we would all have a more thoroughly Christian worldview and that we'd understand better God's plans and his will for our lives. So the objectives of this sermon series are quite big. My objectives for this sermon, on the other hand, are relatively modest. I simply want to introduce the book of Isaiah and to lay the groundwork for what follows. Isaiah contains a large number of really very well-known passages. Think about our Christmas services The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and shall call him Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7.14. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, etc. Isaiah 9.6. And then what about Easter? Uh, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah 53, 6. There are masses of others. What about John the Baptist? Uh, A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. In fact, there are a lot of things that are familiar that I bet a number of you don't even know come from Isaiah. I may be doing you an injustice, but what about this? I am the first and I am at the last, says the Lord. Revelation? Well, yes, it is in Revelation, but it's quoting Isaiah 44, verse 6. Uh, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21. Well, the concepts in Revelation 21... But the quote is from Isaiah 65, 17. Uh, Then what about uh, the armour of God? We know about that, don't we? Or at least we should, because we had a series on it from Ephesians chapter 6 a few months ago. Paul, yes. But Paul borrowed the idea from Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 59. And what about our songs? Awake, awake, O Zion, we sometimes sing. Isaiah 52, 1. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Isaiah 40. Uh, What about the battle hymn of the Republic? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Isaiah 63. And you may be interested to know that one third of the words of Handel's Messiah are direct quotes from Isaiah. So there are many parts of Isaiah that are incredibly well known. And yet... I suspect that very few of us really have come to grips with the book as a whole. Uh, It's a bit like Shakespeare's Hamlet. There are the famous bits we all know. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. To be or not to be, that is the question. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. But those things don't help us come to grips with the play as a whole very much, do they? 
The problem is, it's incredibly long, and it's written in a style that is totally unlike the types of literature with which we are familiar. And the same is true of Isaiah. And the result is, in order to understand Isaiah, we first of all have to understand what it is that we are reading. So let's start with the question, who is, was Isaiah? That bit's easy. Isaiah was an Israelite nobleman who lived in the second half of the 8th century BC. He was a prophet and he ministered from 740 or perhaps 739 BC through to approximately 700 BC. Sorry, (coughs) got something in my throat. To approximately 700 BC. Now that was an incredibly troubled time for the Israelites. The Assyrians invaded, conquered, and ultimately destroyed the southern of the two Israelite kingdoms, variously called Israel, Samaria, or Ephraim. The southern kingdom, Judah, in which Isaiah lived, survived, but it did so only by becoming a vassal of Assyria, and it was constantly troubled, constantly threatened. In fact, Right at the end of Isaiah's ministry, the Assyrians invaded again and devastated Judah, although again the kingdom itself survived. So what did Isaiah? That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. For those listening on the tape, I've just been given a glass of water. There's more there as well. So what did Isaiah have to say about all of this? Well, judging from the length of his book, quite a lot. And a lot of that was relating to the specific context of his time. So, for example, around 735, he warned King Ahaz of Judah against entering into an alliance with Assyria and was ignored, incidentally. And then, a generation later, he warned King Hezekiah about relying on Egypt in order to rebel against Assyria, and he was ignored again. But Isaiah's prophecies aren't in the Bible because of their significance 2,700 years ago. They're in the Bible because of their abiding significance, their significance to us, in other words, and that's what we need to focus on. Now, in order to do that, uh, we are assisted by something that's very significant about the book of Isaiah. It is heavily edited. It's edited in a way designed to bring out that abiding significance. We can argue forever about who the editor was. Was it Isaiah himself or was it someone else? It really doesn't matter. What matters is what the editor did. If we understand that, we will be much better placed to understand the book of Isaiah as a whole. Think about it for a moment. By the end of Isaiah's life, there must have been a massive pile of prophetic material. Oracles, prophetic poems, other prophetic stuff. And the editor could have placed that in chronological order. Or he could have ordered it according to the type of literature. 
Or he could have given up completely and just placed it in the book in the order in which he found it. But he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he grouped it thematically, according to themes designed to show the universal significance of what he was saying. Now, if we were doing that, I suspect the next thing we would have done would be to rewrite some of the stuff in order to make it all read more smoothly and have less repetition, etc. But that wasn't an option for the editor. He knew he was dealing with inspired material. And consequently, it wasn't for him to change it. So as a result, having grouped it according to these big picture themes, he then simply placed the various prophecies in order in those sections. And the result is that the book of Isaiah comprises dozens of separate sections. The sections are linked by these big themes I've talked about. But many sections have sub-themes within them, and those sub-themes may or may not relate to the preceding section or the section that comes afterwards. Furthermore, there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of duplication of things using slightly different words. Now, you may think that all sounds really rather annoying. But I think as you read Isaiah more, you will come to appreciate and admire the job that the editor has done. And I hope that appreciation and admiration will begin this morning. Because you see, the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah are a kind of introduction to the book. They introduce the big themes before the book moves on to consider them in detail thereafter. And the passage we're going to hear today, yeah, we've just reached that point, the passage we're going to hear gives a big, broad overview of those themes. Getting to grips with today's passage and keeping it in mind will help us enormously as we look at the rest of the book in coming weeks. So, let's do that. Let's have our reading. Helen. So the reading today is from the first chapter of Isaiah, and we're reading verses 1 to 9, 15 to 26, and then chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. So I hope I get that right. And it's on page 686 in the Pew Bible. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. A rebellious nation. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know my people, do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers. 
children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten any more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, We would have been like Gomorrah. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness the faithful city. Chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, 
He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Helen. It would be very helpful if you could have that open in front of you. It's on page 686 of the Church Bibles. Two big picture points. First of all, that passage illustrates what I have been saying about the multiplicity of sections in the book of Isaiah. There are at least six prophecies underlying that passage. Uh, Take a look, for example, at verses 21 to 26. When you get home, look at it closely. It's actually a self-contained and very carefully constructed poem. Verse 21 balances verse 26, verse 22 balances verse 25, and verse 23 matches verse 24. That's point one. Point two. Obviously, all of that was originally said in a particular historical context. We're given that context to some extent in verse one. But apart from that general statement in verse one, This passage is devoid of historical references. Its significance transcends its historical context. So what is that significance? Well, let's start at verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. The whole of the heavens, the whole of the earth is summoned to listen, to be a witness Because God has spoken. And what is it that he said? Carrying on in verse 2. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation. A people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption... They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. What is it the Lord said? My people have rejected me. My people have turned their backs on me. Now, obviously, he's talking there about his chosen people, the Israelites. But we soon learn that the same charge can be laid at the door of every one of us. And Isaiah says there are consequences. Verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. Verse 7, your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. What's the consequence of this rejection of God? Disaster. Note what Isaiah is saying. He is saying that the disasters of his lifetime, in particular the Assyrians' actions, were the result of this rejection of God. 
Now, what does that say about God and his actions? What does it say about world affairs? What does it say about life? Isaiah will return to all of those questions. They comprise one of the major themes of his book. But for the moment, he moves on. Daughter Zion, daughter Zion's a personification of Jerusalem. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah, destroyed, in other words. This devastation has not been total. God has willed that there be some survivors, a remnant, to use the phrase that Isaiah will use time and again in his book. Well, why? How does that fit in with the judgment that so clearly underlies this passage? Isaiah doesn't say at this stage. That, again, will be part of one of his major themes in the rest of the book. For the moment, he just wants us to note that though God has willed destruction, he has also willed that some survive that destruction. And then he returns to the rejection of God. What does it comprise? This next bit wasn't in our reading, but I will quote it now. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Is the Israelites' problem a lack of religious observance? No, it isn't. We're told later on that they frequently go to the temple. They have a multitude of religious festivals and the Lord loathes them. Verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Wow. That's quite a condemnation, isn't it? No, the problem was not a lack of religious observance. The problem was the Israelites' behaviour. The end of verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. If I can use an anachronism, the problem wasn't what they were doing on a Sunday. The problem was what they were doing Monday to Saturday. Now, of course, that raises lots of questions about how religious observance relates to our everyday lives. And Isaiah will have more to say about those things. But for the moment, he wants us just to note that point. And then he returns to the question of the consequences of all of this. Verse 18... Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. By the way, that doesn't mean let's have a little fireside chat about it. It doesn't mean let's philosophize about it. What Isaiah is saying is 
let's sit down and let's settle the matter as in court. What is going to be the consequence of your rebellion? Well, I suspect we think we know what we've heard, haven't we? It's destruction, verses 5 to 7. But let's go back to verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, yeah, we know that. He's already laid that charge. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. What's all that about? God's forgiveness? Certainly. But Isaiah indicates that there's far more than forgiveness involved here. Uh, Take a look at verses 21 and 26. Start with verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. We know that, don't we? That that's repeating the charge against the people that we've already seen. But then look at verse 26. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. What's being said is that in addition to forgiving people, God plans to restore things to the way in which he always intended them to be. God intends to purge the people, to cleanse them of their wrongdoing. Now, Again, you may say, well, just a minute, what exactly does that comprise? How's it going to happen? And again, Isaiah will come to that. For the moment, He just wants us to note that what is being said is that God will forgive some people and will restore the world to the way that he wishes it to be and always intended it to be. Now, at this point, I can imagine you uh, saying, well, this is all very good, but you've already indicated that Isaiah's addressing the Israelites here. I'm not an Israelite. So what's this got to do with me? That's where the last bit of our reading fits in. Chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. A very famous passage, perhaps one of those passages with which we are familiar A lot could be said about it, and indeed, Isaiah will have a lot more to say about it in future chapters. But for the moment, he just wants us to note that God's plans extend to everybody, to all nations. Non-Israelites, people like us, will hear about God. They will seek God. 
and God's plans of forgiveness and restoration extend to them, to us. God's plan of salvation extends to people of all kinds. But there's one final thing that Isaiah says and which we need to observe. Go back to verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, there are two groups, not one. There are those who are willing and obedient, and they will enjoy that forgiveness and restoration of which Isaiah has been speaking. They will, as it were, were, be the citizens of the city of righteousness that he refers to in verse 26. But there's another group, the group who resist and rebel, and they will be destroyed. They will be devoured by the sword. They, as it were, remain in that city that has become a prostitute, referred to in verse 21. Now again, I'm sure that lots of questions arise in your mind. How can we be sure that we're part of the first group, not the second group? And second, as I've implied before, how does all this fit in with God's justice and righteousness? The whole final third of the book is primarily devoted to those issues. For the moment, however, Isaiah merely wants us to note the key points, and in particular to note that to be, in part of the, be part of the first group requires repentance, and second, that when all this is done, it will be consistent with God's justice and righteousness. Look at verse 27. Zion will be delivered with justice. Her penitent ones those who are repentant, with righteousness. So there you have it. The Lord has spoken, as it says in verse 2. And what has he said? He says, my people have rebelled. They've turned their backs on me and I am punishing them. And furthermore, those who continue to resist and rebel, I will destroy. But... God has decreed that there should be a remnant of those who are not. Those who are willing and obedient, he will forgive and restore to life as he intends it to be. And what's more, this isn't just relevant to the Israelites. It's relevant to everybody. On the one hand, if God is prepared to judge his chosen people, the Israelites, how much more will he be prepared to judge everyone else? On the other hand, God extends his promise of forgiveness and restoration, his offer of that to everyone. Now, Isaiah will spend the next 65 chapters expanding on every aspect of that. But the key points are here in today's passage. And we need to remember that we have to respond to that. Are we content with being in that city, the faithless city, the city that's a prostitute? 
or are we to choose the city of righteousness that is referred to in uh, verse 26? As Isaiah says in verse 5 of chapter 2, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. As with everything else, it applies to us as much as the Israelites. Amen.